This is a show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business. How are you? Great to have you on the show today. Okay, so we have something a little different today. We have Jake Cardwell and Yoni Novak from the CFO Squad. And we're going to talk business, business accounting, compliance, uh, capitalization, all kinds of really cool things that is not necessarily discussed in, in any real in-depth on the radio. So without further ado, Jay, Yoni, thank you for being with us. Uh, I'll just throw this out there. What's the, what's the primary business goal of, of the CFO Squad? CFOsquad.com. The CFO Squad, um, this is Jay, and I'm glad to be here. But the CFO Squad, we've been around for about five years, and I would say 70% of our clients are publicly traded. So we help uh, our clients file their financial, prepare and file their financial reports with the SEC. Uh, and the rest of our clients are, are, are private companies, are wanting to be public, and we help them through that process. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what does it mean? Because we're going to do a little bit of 101. We all know that there's different exchanges out there. There's the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. There's the New York Stock Exchange. There's the American Exchange. There's all kinds of exchanges. And then when you watch TV, there's the FTSE and uh, there's the NASDAQ and there's uh, uh, OTC Markets. Yeah, yeah, there's all this stuff. You know? yeah. uh, some of it popularized by you know, Maria Bartolomo. Um, you know, one of the Ramones sang a song about her. <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting how uh, that connection. So when you talk about publicly traded companies, which exchanges are you talking about? And more importantly, if you could start with this, what is the difference between all these different exchanges? Well, most of our clients are are on the OTC, but we're having a lot of clients move up and, and have a few both on the American Exchange as well as NASDAQ, only because some of the institutional investors that are out there, they no longer want to invest in the smaller cap OTC markets. Uh, but most companies starting out, I mean, the only place that they can really go into is into the OTC markets. And, and I would say there's thousands and thousands and thousands of public companies on the, on, on the OTC. Um, uh, but eventually, as companies get bigger and they qualify and they have more investors and more revenues, and there's all sorts of various rules on how to qualify, one sort of moves up either to NASDAQ or to the New York Stock Exchange or the American Exchange. And there's competition, you know, sort of between some of those exchanges in order to get certain types of investors and certain types of companies. Now, did they all have opening and closing bells? Not just <laughs> 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 I got to make this fun for all the people. Yeah. Out there. What What is the difference between the types of stock that are, are are in these different? Like, I know that you say that they're tiers, but what what makes you eligible? To be like, we all know that the, the, the fortune, like, you know, 100 are sort of, you know, either in the, the NASDAQ or, or the New York Stock Exchange. I know that NASDAQ is, tends to have more tech in it. But who decides who decides what's on what exchange? And then how do you go from one exchange to another, um, you know, as you either grow or market forces make it a little different of a reality? 
Well, each exchange has their own rules. And and some you have to be able to be traded at a certain price uh, for so many days to qualify, or you have to have so much in equity in order to qualify. They they have different entry platforms to become on that exchange, and one normally enters into a dialogue either with Nasdaq or with the OTC or or uh, the New York Stock Exchange, and they have people there that help working with new potential companies that want to go on those exchanges to make sure that they're qualified, make sure that they're following all their rules, and, 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 and literally prepare uh, to, to hit that opening bell and to, and to launch your company. All right. So let's say I'm in, all right, so I'm, I'm in uh, one of the 62 counties of New York, and I specialize in making pickles and olives, okay? We just love pickles and olives, yeah. all right? And we're great at it. We, we make them in the bathtub, and uh, we got the mason jars, and we heat them up, and whatever, we, we, we do a whole big thing. And I go to you, um, I, want to be, I want to go public. Now, you're, you're going to be serious with me, even though you're like, you know, bathtub. <laughs> right, yeah. Because maybe I have a big bathtub, and the trucks keep rolling in and out. So what is the analysis or the questions you're going to ask me? Just, you know, because I'm going to say to you, I want to go public. What are you going to ask me? Do, do I even know what it is to go public? Uh, what are the benefits uh, that I'm looking for? What are you going to ask me? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let Yoni go ahead and answer one here. Uh, but go ahead, Yoni. I'm sorry. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, nice to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, that, that's Yoni Novak, and welcome. Welcome to Taking Care of Business. Thank you. Thank you. Talk, talk a little louder, please. Uh, so I, the... The real question always comes down to, you know, when somebody, when a client comes to us to say they want to go public, um, the question is why, right? So there's, and usually for, for most companies, um, the, the answer is liquidity, right? They need some source of financing. So there are lots of ways that you can get financing. Um, some are easier than others, you know, from a, from a private company perspective, you know, if you want to get equity financing, then there's, you know, private equity, um, you know, once you pass the seed, ra- seed, um, seed round and you start going to more institutional investors, so then you, you know, looking for um, more serious money in terms of the dollar amount, then, you know, you go to an institutional investor and get a, go for private equity. But some companies choose whether it's because of market conditions or whether they, in terms of valuation, that they think that they can get better financing, and it's not just they think that, you know, there's bankers out there and uh, a lot of professionals that are working around um, to try to help them make that the right decision to say where is their best bang for their buck in terms of, you know, access to capital and to be able to really grow their business to the next level. Right. So in my pickle and olive factory, uh, I'm doing okay, but... You know, I have employees. I got trucks. I got you know. I probably need to buy a bigger warehouse factory. Um, I need money for that. Um, what would you say my my options are as far as giving me the most control over my destiny? I, you know, when you when you have to go public, you there's a lot of I've heard you guys talk in other venues, and you talk about how to have you know a lot of transparency. That's the big word I heard. Transparency. You have to open your books. You have to show everything. Um, you know, maybe people are a little shy about some of the things because maybe they aren't really that profitable. 
They have got, you know, maybe they have, let's say my pickle sales are $2 million, but my cost of goods and development is like a million nine. So I'm only, I'm only netting a hundred thousand at the end of the day. And after taxes, you know, what do you got? You know, $63,000 left. Um, maybe that's not the most profitable of enterprise. Um, what do you advise the person who owns the business who's looking to go public about the reality of numbers? I think I think some companies have to ask that question is is there a reason why I should be public or sometimes why I shouldn't be public because there's some companies that it's expensive to be a public company uh and the people that you have to hire and go to that next level are a lot of overheads that some companies just aren't prepared, you know, to pay. But the other thing is is also in our business, we're all about helping companies prepare their financial statements so that they can, you know, be a public company and they can be audited. And I would say the first question that we do sometimes when we go into a client is, one, can you be audited? There's a lot of companies, oh, I want to be a public company, but they're not prepared to be audited. They're not prepared for someone to go back in their books two years or, or older and to try to, you know, uh, account for all those things. They were running their business. They were making money, but they didn't keep their records. And and we've got plenty of horror stories of some clients that they just don't have their records, and they cannot be a public company if they can't keep their records straight. Let's hear a couple of words. Like, let's say, for example, in my imaginary pickle factory, and if you saw a picture of me, I spent $100,000 on hair treatments. <laughs> You know, yeah. maybe that's a personal expense and, you know, it has to be sort of dealt with or, you know, what do you have to do? Give the money back and then try to clean it up somehow or or do you have to just wait two more years and phase that out? Like, how would how would you recommend? We, we look at both options. A great, yeah. Let me tell you a great, a great story that really kind of brings all the point, which H has kind of mentioned. Um, so we had a client came to us. They were, they were advised through bankers and through um, their board of directors, friends, friends and family uh, that have been through the process, you know, times uh, in the past, that uh, their best course of action was to go public and to bring their company to the next level. And it wasn't a pickle company, but it was similar in the sense that um, they had inventory, right? Just like you had pickles, so you have lots of cucumbers and uh, that you are waiting to be pickled and sell. Um, so to, to this company, they had that inventory. And one of the big, big challenges in, um, in, in auditing financial statements historically, when you know, it's, not at, it's not at the time, is when you have inventory on your balance sheet and you need to prove out to the auditors that we had inventory of this quantity of these items at that time. So that's always a challenge, kind of whenever we get a client that sees um, that, that has inventory, it says they want to go um, do an audit from the, from the history. You know, that's kind of one always thing that we bring up. Essentially, they came to us and they said, we want to do this. We said this is going to be a challenge, you know, especially their, their, um, their books and records were not the, in the best shape, let's just put it that way. And um, particularly that in terms of their inventory, they did not have a cohesive inventory system. It, we spent months and months and months to get, through, get, get this through an audit. There were definitely times late at night I'm like, this is not happening. There is like no way 
that we're going to be able to gather up all these pieces of information and prove out the necessary requirements from an audit perspective to, to get this through audit. It, it took, I mean, I think the, the original project, you know, we thought it would be like from start to finish, um, it would take like, you know, let's say two and a half months, something like that, and ended up taking like nine months. We ended up getting it through, um, but it was just in, incredibly difficult. And that's kind of just proves the point of what we love to hear is clients that come to us that say, I want to do something in the future, meaning I want to plan now that I could prep and be ready into position that I want to do a transaction in the future, whether it's sell my company, go public, raise money, whatever it may be, then say, I want to plan now for the future. And we've had those clients that have come to us. It's like, oh, uh, my banker, he wants to take me public this this fall, and they're calling us July 1st, and they've never been audited. Uh, we had one. I mean, just a short war story, uh, a, a client that in that situation said they're clean, they're debt-free, they don't have any big revenues right now, they just they want to go public and then start their operations later. So we thought it was uh, a relatively simple exercise. And we sort of says, okay, you're debt-free. Yeah, I converted all my debt to equity. I gave them stock, and, and they, they converted those instruments. And one, we look under the hood, and we do things before it gets to the auditors so that you're not wasting time with auditors. And we says, can we see all these conversion documents where you took the debt instrument, and they signed off and they converted it to shares of stock in the company. And it's just like, oh, no, it's all here on a spreadsheet. No, we need to see the actual legal agreements. Oh, we tossed those away. We didn't keep them. I said, then you still have debt. And we had to spend weeks and months helping them through the process of recollecting all those instruments again. So that's where there's a perception about being a public company and when you talk about transparency. Sometimes it's just about keeping records and being prepared to understand what goes in to these things that we call audited financial statements. And uh, it's not as, as simple, but it can be if you plan ahead, like Yoni said. All right, so who, who are these auditors? Are they government auditors? Are they bank auditors? Are they auditors on behalf of investors? Who, who, we only have like two, two minutes. Yeah, auditors are, I mean, there's lots of audit firms. We don't audit. We help prepare for auditors, but there's big ones like Pricewaterhouse uh, and, and, and Deloitte, and then there's regional ones and there's smaller ones. They all have to be qualified, uh, uh, what we call a PCAOB auditor, to make sure that they are regulated for publicly traded companies. But they're the ones that they don't prepare the financial statements. They sort of kick the tires on financial statements. And, and what do they do? Do they, do they say, okay, so footnote 76 is that we have um, 5,000 uh, jars and lids. I need to see the proof of that. Is that how Correct. it sort of works? Yeah, they yeah. want to see the background information. They want to see that you have that invoice. Uh, and they test it. They don't look at every single item, but they sample. And, and all of the things that they sample, they want to make sure that, that you have. And they have their techniques of audit so, so that they can get through the process. But there are certain things that might be material uh, that they're going to want to see every single thing. Now, do they basically... 
get the accounting software data, you know, and then they sort of suck it into their system and then look at it? Because I can't imagine that they – do they do it like sort of remotely or do they try to do it in-house at the, the target no. of the audit's place of business? Yoni, you can, you can answer this, but for the most part, we first – did it from the client, and we put it into a format that's easier for the auditors. Uh, but Yoni, you can sort of uh, explain just a little bit on on how it, it gets from the client to the auditor. Yeah, sure. So I mean, that's definitely a, a big part of our role. Our role is basically the liaison between the client and the auditor, and basically being that that uh, that that bridge, if you will. Um, because we've done, you know, our, our, you know, me, Jay, and our team around us. We really had have seen this so many times, you know, throughout our careers at CFO Squad and many of us throughout our careers even before CFO Squad. Um, so we've just been through countless audits and kind of there is a systematic approach to it. So um, we kind of help to facilitate that process. And you know, really, this is there's a lot of lot of guidelines and, and regulatory uh, requirements from an, from an auditor's perspective, but they go through you know exactly systematically. How they have to test um, the transactions, what they have to test, and then you know it, it's not like every audit firm has their own uh, you know set of rules. There is a general set of rules. Each audit firm might have their own flavor or style, but um, definitely there's a general set of rules, and then you know you have to conform with those set of rules, and you have to be able to provide documentation and support for all those transactions. All right. This is Richard Solomon. I'm with the CFO Squad. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, I'm going to ask a question about can you go public by buying a publicly traded company? We'll be right back. We're back. Welcome to Taking Care of Business. We're in our second segment. I have uh, two great people who are going to talk to us about uh, publicly traded companies and all the other good stuff. I got Jay and Yoni from the CFO Squad, cfosquad.com. And before the break, I asked a question. And the question was, can I go public? And instead of going through the whole thing of the audit and transparency, can I just buy a publicly traded company and then sort of like merge? Is that something that people can do? Is it is it advisable? Under what circumstances is it generally advisable? And uh, what do you think it uh, as it relates to different kinds of business? Is it more perfect uh, for certain kinds of business or not perfect for any business? Uh, we see it and we work on clients like that uh, every single year. But most people they hear all the time about the IPO of going public. But in the flip side, if you have a great company and you've been private uh, and you may find, I wouldn't call it a shell, but a publicly traded company that isn't that big or that active, you can do what's called the reverse acquisition where all of your shareholders and your company buys so much in a merger, in a reverse, that you actually get to own that public company. But it really doesn't save you uh, on the requirements 
to be audited. Uh, you're still, as a company, you are the register. You're the company that's going to be trading effectively once the reverse goes through, and therefore, you still have to be audited. Uh, only if you are a small private company and some very, very large public company wants to acquire you and make you part of their company can you sometimes avoid the audit. Uh, but there's really no, no uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, way around being unaudited. All right. Now, in terms of audits, I, I understand that there's financial auditing, but is there auditing for all kinds of documents and employment practices, things like um, you know checking the payroll, making sure that everybody's in compliance with all the rules, like the FLSA, the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, making sure there's unemployment workers. Uh, we're unemployment insurance or workers comp and and all that stuff and that you have the incorporation documents and that's it's properly listed with the Department of State and the biennial statements have been uh, done and that the uh, all of the kinds of accounts and accounting like let's say there's sales tax that the sales tax has been segregated reported and submitted you do all that stuff as well. There, there are different regulatory bodies. You know, you just mentioned a lot right there. Well, yeah, that's um, my job. But there, are <laughs> yeah. right. there, there are different regulatory bodies that uh, that kind of oversee and govern. You know, each one of those different item, different type of items. Um, what we have kept kept on referring to, uh, particularly, is you know financial audits, and that um, ultimately, you know. All public companies are um, are under the regulatory body of the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC. And then within within the SEC, there is the one asset. There are a lot of requirements of disclosure, like we kept on, you know, also saying in terms of that transparency. Transparency, you know, the the, the point of the SEC is to make. All that all shareholders or all potential shareholders, if they're trading the stock, should have an equal playing field and should have an insight into the company from a perspective that they should understand the numbers, they should know what the company is planning on to doing, and anytime that there is new information that comes out, then all all shareholders should have that information at the same time. So one aspect of that, and that's a main focus from the CFO squad, is the financial reporting and just that the actual revenue and expenses and the balance sheet of the company is true and accurate, and that's where the financial statement auditors come in. There are other auditors, um, you know, just, you know, for example, yeah, like IRS yeah, auditors. Uh, yeah, I was going to jump in. I mean, there's, you know, we, we have – we have a tax division as well. So, yes, there are tax audits and people, you know, can have uh, an, a state can come in and audit your, your payroll um, uh, and other uh, uh, your compliance. And, and norm normally when, when we look at a client, we're going to work with the attorneys to, to make sure that, hey, that company is current with the Secretary of State of where they're, they're operating. But hopefully a client has 
other participants and other people in the company that are helping them to run payroll and, and that they have a good payroll service and they're keeping it up to date, you know, and they are filing with their secretary states their annual reports. But we're going to go through some of those those checklists. But there's there's a lot of other audits that could occur if if uh, uh, down the line, and, and that's where the record keeping and keeping that in order, you know, helps that process. All right, so let me ask you a question about publicly available document versus transparency and disclosure. So let's say, for example, there is a publicly filed lawsuit involving the company, and I don't know, it alleges all kinds of things. You know how lawsuits are. Uh, you, you know, there's some kind of thing. It's, it's always a million dollars. Sometimes now it's $5 million. Um, and I know that, you know, there's these statements that says, you know, whether litigation has a material impact or effect on the vitality of the company. Um, how does that all work in, in your investigations? And how much do you have to disclose if something is publicly available that, that people can go and look for themselves versus you have to basically reprint the litigation docket sheet and lay it all out there? How does all that work? Well, in a normal filing, there is air, sections that, where the company is disclosing pending litigation. And for the most part, it's not the full lawsuit. It's not all of the details of it. It's fairly limited or required in in the in the financial statements to to describe those you're you're going to say hey here's the actions that are occurring and in most cases you know it may create this is what is being claimed and that the company is going to defend it vigorously you know but there's going to be enough information that if somebody wanted to could go off and and look at the court case wherever it is is being filed and if it's big companies are they're getting sued all the time but the materiality the size of the lawsuit compared to their overall balance sheet or operations is relatively small they're not going to have to list all of those those lawsuits uh so only the ones that are material uh that could impact the balance sheet and the future operations or the ability for the company to continue those are the ones that that uh, are going to be disclosed right let's take for a moment, the reverse. Let's say you're a public company and now you want to take it private. We've, we've read about that in the news. Um, yep. Why does that happen and what is different about that other than being the opposite? You know, I almost feel like the Seinfeld question, which is, you know, Sam is not the opposite of tuna. Chicken is. You know, what are so how, is it is it the opposite or is it not the opposite or is it something completely different? It it, it for some companies, all right. That annual cost to being a publicly traded company, to hire your SEC attorneys, to hire firms like ourselves, to do the audits, uh, and all those other compliance rules and and and. Uh, the special filings that there's some new information about the company, and uh, you want to talk about it, but oh, you got to file a public statement on that, or you got to, you know, do various other rules. Otherwise, if you don't, you could be criminally charged, or other bad things could happen to you. So, so therefore, it, it there 
being a public company in some cases can put shackles on you and and you can't talk about things with without uh, other proper statements being filed so and certain bankers they don't want to spend all that money they want to take you private and they literally will take a public company take it private build it back up again they will still go through audits. They will stu- still do many of the, th- the things that public companies will do, but they're not having to do all the reporting to the SEC. But their plan sometimes down the line is to take it back public again uh, and to have that exit strategy to being public. But those, what I consider quarter of a million to sometimes a million dollars a year in order to be just a public company is just not something that most companies want to go through. So how does that work where if you're, quote, going private, how does it work and how do you determine um, the price of everybody's stock that you're going to buy? How, how does that work in the real world? Well, that's where the bankers come in, you know. Uh, and in, in some cases, we work with a, a client and we work with valuation companies. Uh, and Yoni does a lot of uh, modeling uh, for, for our clients uh, to look ahead and to say, hey, this this is a great company, and in five years it's going to be worth X, Y, Z. Uh, uh, and so one one will look and, and forecast uh, forecast those elements. Um, but then the bankers get involved, and they look at it to determine what they think that the market is going to play. Uh, and that's where the negotiations of those of those guys, you know, and girls, you know, come into play. So. Now, it, it, it seems just from our limited conversation here, there are a lot of different actors on this stage. You got all these auditors, you got the corporate people, you got attorneys, you got regulatory authorities, I guess, on the state and national level. Am I missing anybody? Or are there more? There's underwriters and. Uh, act- well, there's uh, Yoni. Uh, you might might have some. I mean, one that just came off is like uh, investor relations firms and stock transfer companies uh, are also there uh, uh, as as part of keeping track of things and and helping tell the story of a public company. I mean, I think sometimes a public company. There's two different businesses. There's one, the normal operations of the company, and 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 making money the old-fashioned way by selling products or selling services. And then there's the business of being a public company and being able to keep your company in the, the line of sight of bankers and investors and with the future being bright to the point that people want to buy and sell your stock. And wear sunglasses. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like the song, the, I got a future so bright I need to wear sunglasses. Um, in terms of trends, and I'm not asking for a real big forecast, but is the trend, or has the trend been, more towards going public in the last five to ten years? Or is it more narrow that only some companies uh, have gone that route because of all of the costs associated with sustaining a viable, uh, well-run public company? Um, Bill, I go ahead. Yeah, I, yeah, I can that. So, um, there definitely has been an uptick. You know, I in the last. You know, I mean, obviously, right now during COVID, everything. You know, the markets are. Uh, you know, when when COVID kicked in, the markets were you know depressed. But 
um, you know, over the past couple of years, there's definitely we've seen an uptick in terms of companies that are looking uh, to go public and get into that um, to the capital markets. Um, you know, really, you always have to ask yourself. You know, and there's really when you're in terms of um, equity financing, then it's there's pretty much two roads. You know, it's private equity or public equity, and public equity meaning public companies. So um, they they both play hand in hand, um, but a lot of companies that you know we always hear about, and in the news you hear about these you know mega billion dollar companies that are going public, having an IPO, and you know that happens. You know when they call them unicorns, that you know it happens once or you know a few times a year at at most a really massive IPO. But on a on a day to day basis, I mean like you know probably a, a dozen a month or, or so. Um, companies are going public. So, you know, that's not obviously in the U.S. markets. So there's really been, you know, there's always a, a, a balance between, you know, what is right for my company, when is the proper time. But, you know, it is definitely a viable option in terms of, you know, a, a source of financing. Now, is it the general impression that sort of technology companies are more ripe to be public companies because the need for, you know, massive capital, especially when technology could be worldwide technology or, you know, when you think of things like uh, manufacturing of computer chips, when you think of, uh, you know, mobile phones, uh, you know, things that are almost ubiquitous. Um, or is that just sort of the media kind of highlighting that to the exclusion of other kinds of businesses that are also well-suited? Well, I think that you you see the tech stocks. I think they they are obviously out there promoting themselves, but there is a need for them to be public and to have huge amounts of an access to public capital as they expand. And they're having to sometimes expand so rapidly that the only source of that capital is is, is through the public markets. Uh, there are still some very large, you know, private uh, tech tech stocks, but you frequently will see them uh, at least be preparing and with the with the forethought that eventually they're going to be public. I mean, there can be a lot of private equity funds going into tech stocks, but they're long-term are still expecting them to eventually come out and, and be publicly traded. That's, that is their, 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 their exit strategy. Um, and, but I think where we're also seeing as, as I alluded to, I think earlier was, is that, that some of the institutional investors and their profiles are getting a little bit more strict. So they want, uh, uh, higher grade public, uh, stock and have these companies move into off the OTC and into NASDAQ or one of the other exchanges. Now we, let, let's talk a little bit. We only have like a minute. So maybe let me just set up the yeah. question. We'll talk about this on the other side of the break, but there are different kinds of stock. There's common stock, there's preferred stock, there's other, I guess there's other kinds, there's classes of stock. For, for people who don't really see this day-to-day -day in their business lives or even in their regular lives, uh, I want to be able to talk a little bit about that and what are the differences between those kinds of stocks and which of those stocks are more in private businesses and which are the ones more on publicly traded companies. So with that, let me take a quick break. I have 
Jay and Yoni from the CFO Squad, and we'll be right back. everybody back. You are listening to Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Today we are talking to the CFO squad, although I heard they're going to change their name to the CFO Army and <laughs> or Marines. <laughs> um, we have Jay and we have Yoni, and they are uh, true experts, and that's why we have them on. And before the break, the question was, what are all these different classes of stock, and there's preferred, and voting, and this, and common, and what, are those more geared towards private, which was a publicly traded. So why don't we start with that as our lead-off question for part three of this uh, interview. Well, let me lead in here, and then I'll ask Yoni a question. Is I would say 95% of your companies, what they're trading is common stock. You know, some very, very large companies will have preferred stock trading, but your small companies and your medium size and, and most of your publicly traded companies, they're trading in common stock. Uh, but what might be interesting is is when the bankers start getting involved with with uh, a public company or private company and wanting to take them public, is the various other elements, how to compensate employees that, that may not have been fully compensated and they're getting some some extra stock, but the bankers will sometimes come along and invest or or will loan money that's convertible into stock and they have warrants and all these special provisions that a lot of without a good attorney, a lot of a lot of people won't see it happen and, and Yoni can probably describe some horror stories of of what's called derivatives and what it can do to someone's balance sheet. So take it sure. away. Thanks, Jay. So as it often happens, especially in startup companies and the, you know the micro caps of the world, that really you know they they need to they're strapped for cash. They're looking for alternative financing, and that's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, why they're drawn to being a public company in the first place. Um, they come up with, you know, they come up with, uh, they meaning the bankers um, and the investors come up with very interesting, to say the least, um, and you know, sources of financing and basically with convoluted, uh, with a, for a back, lack of a better term. Um, features inside of them. So some of them will include, uh, just to throw out a few examples, you know, like, like Jay mentioned, something called a derivative, which is essentially a, a debt instrument that can be converted to common stock at any time. And then the, the price that it's converted is, you know, you know uh, the, the three lowest trading days of the 10-day VWAP, which in layman's terms is basically they get some type of discount to the market whenever they want to convert it. Uh, so without getting into all the granular detail from accounting perspective, that really becomes a, a very, very complex aspect of uh, financial reporting and uh, of accounting of GAAP. So there often is that layers in the whole new level of 
additional work from auditors, from you know staff like us, um, and as well, it also brings in valuation es- experts. So, besides for the cost of that capital just being on the face of it, there's also all the regulatory hoops that you have to go through in order to really just just account for it and to just keep up their financial reporting aspect. And and sometimes we've seen, you know, the worst case scenario where someone says, oh, I'm investing a million dollars in your company or I'm investing $5 million in company, but I want these extra special warrants and without going into too many details of, of, of what one could ask for, all of a sudden those warrants create another million to five million dollars, you know, doubling the, the, the debt on the books, and then all of a sudden your balance sheet looks horrible, and, and then your stock starts going down because everyone thinks that you've just, you're, you've got too many liabilities on your books, but it's all these, these derivatives, and then all of a sudden that doesn't allow you to go public beca- in, into a NASDAQ or bigger market because you have too much debt. So it 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 I've seen clients spend years trying to get out from underneath it. Now we love our bankers. You know, all bankers, you know, we companies need them, but one always has to really read those documents very very well and and before they sign them, we always say do the calculations. What does this mean to your balance sheet after you sign it? It's not just getting a million dollars worth of stock sold. It might mean several million dollars of debt. And and it's paper debt that just sits on your books and it becomes a horrible drag for a company. So in the eh, 13 minutes we have left, let's hear some good war stories, some, some great victories, some surprises, some creative moments. Anything that okay, comes to me. mind. Anything that yeah. comes to mind. All right. So um, I'll tell you one that uh, it's actually not on the public company side, but um, I, I still I still like the story. Um, it was really, you know, it was a few years ago. We were involved with the company. We originally came in as a private company, growing rapidly on the, in the healthcare space. And we originally came in to do, you know, help them through their first audit. Um, they were, you know, they were getting more corporate-like, um, and they were growing as a company, and they really wanted to kind of um, move the financial, you know, the finance team in the right direction. So we kind of came in to help out. Um, it ended up being that we really got integrated with with the finance team, me personally, and a lot of, uh, you know, my staff as well. You know, we ended up touching basically every aspect of their company in terms of from the finance side. Um, we ended up doing catching up all years and years of tax returns, doing, you know, I think it was ended up being five or six years of financial audits. We helped them on uh, from the financial the, uh, due diligence process when they were going to raise um, private equity. They ended up raising a successful raise of $60 million. And they, and, you know, but we were in, involved and really integrated as part of their finance team. Ultimately, towards the end of the process, we ended up bringing in an interim CFO, uh, Joseph Himmy, our founder, who came in as the interim CFO to kind of help them through the last phase of um, the financing and to, to push them over the edge in terms of, you know, help them through over that hump. Because really, once you go through 
you know, financial due diligence of private equity firms, you know, firm after firm after firm, uh, you know, usually the, you know, companies that are going, looking to raise money, they could reach out to, you know, tens or even hundreds of, uh, of firms to try to raise money and then narrow it down to the people that are interested in that space and then narrow it down to more as they go through the financial due diligence process. And it really just can become a big burdensome process. So I like to kind of tell that story mainly because it just kind of shows the different facets of the CFO squad. It's, you know, it's not that we're just a financial reporting company. You know, it's really that we can help in almost every aspect. And, you know, we grow and shrink based on demand and based on the client size and need. So, you know, just a, a little insight of one client um, at one point in time, just I, I really I like to bring that out. Uh, Jake, any good uh, war stories or, or interesting? Sure, I mean, I've, got, I've probably got more war stories, but I have one, one, one good story here that I mean, we had, uh, and and it's still one of one of our clients that the uh, uh, they had a concept for an app for 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 a phone for uh, iPhone or uh, a smartphone, and uh, we've helped them develop their plan and forecast their model as they were developing their technology. And um, after uh, a couple years, uh, they were well, they were going to launch uh, around February 1st of this past year, and COVID hit, and they sort of, you know, pulled back a little bit. Uh, and uh, uh, now they are they are uh, launching out, and uh, we expect them to 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 go public this next year. So uh, we've we've seen it from the 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 uh, uh, the infancy and just the concept, you know, to larger companies that have the the full accounting firms, but. I like I I like working with 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 clients that take their concept and and help them through the years so that uh, uh, they can actually be you know a successful company and if they want to go public they'll be ready to go public. To, to what extent have either of you seen innovation being the engine of a company as opposed to just doing a standard kind of thing like I don't know making making tires just you just make them well as opposed to making like a revolutionary tire that won't ever go flat and you know will will give you good gas mileage or things like that for lack of a better example right so actually i would say you know most of our companies are on the innovative um you know trend or you know they are innovators um you know, we ha we definitely have the standard companies. You know, they they sell you know a retail, um, they sell electronics and so on and so forth. But a lot of our companies are you know a big handful of our companies are in the healthcare space, really doing you know very very unique ideas, creating products or creating new ways of doing things. Um, we have companies that are R and D companies, whether they're in you know, researching from medical marijuana or they're researching in, uh, you know, precancerous uh, detection um, tools. So there's definitely, we see a lot of that. And that, I think, is the great aspect of, you know, the public market, that there's really a, you know, there's so much great entrepreneurship out there. And, you know, the, the capital market be able to get, you know, capital and financing to these entrepreneurs and to these innovators and that really kind of drives growth as, you know, the economy as a whole. 
where do all these entrepreneurs come from? Because you can't, in my opinion, you can't really go to school and learn to be an entrepreneur so much as you have to have a lot of, you know, skills that somehow bring bring something inside of you to the surface. I, I can't explain it, but you like you could teach me how to write a song. I can go to school for songwriting and 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 Beethoven and Mozart will be there and as professors. And I'll never just write a great song or, or a decent song or, or, or a pathetic song. I'll just it'll be it's just not in me. So what is it where does the entrepreneurial fire come from? And where do you see it coming out of? I mean, I've I've seen it through the years. I mean, we've, you know, just my one client that I just described, I mean, he was in real estate uh, and commercial real estate and had a concept uh, for an iPhone for something that he needed for his family. And he just sort of kept on thinking that, well, I'm not the only one who needs this, and I can't find anybody else doing it. So he was so frustrated that he could download an app to solve a problem for himself that he decided to figure out how to design his own app and just believe that there's millions of people that need the same problem solved. And I think that's where it comes from. It's just like, what frustrates you? What what do you think that the world needs that, that isn't being solved? Or just the, a new, better way of, of doing things that if all of a sudden... If, if if you have or can solve that problem, and uh, and you'll be amazed that there are a lot of problems out there that that haven't been solved yet, and I think that's where that innovator comes in that sees that problem for themselves, and and knows instinctively that it's gonna it's gonna solve the problem for millions of people around the world. Would you regard yourselves as entrepreneurs, individually as opposed to the company? Uh, at one point, I was. <laughs> I don't know if I am <laughs> so much anymore. That's honest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, do you, when I was younger. Uh, yeah. Do Do you need to be? So, actually, go, go, you know, I consider. Well, you know, I consider. I definitely consider myself a, a, an entrepreneur in, in a sense. I mean, I'm not the founder of the firm, but I've been with the firm basically since the beginning, the third employee. Um, so, you know, what I like to you know to say is that there's really you know, we're not your, you know, your father's or grandfather's uh, accountant, you know, accountant. You know, there's there's way more that can be done now in terms of, you know, software, in terms of automation. You know, we what I definitely like to focus on is like flip the script as in, you know, not the typical accountant that's sitting in the back crunching numbers through on his, uh, you know, on his calculator. It's, you know, the whole world is, is shifting and the county profession is shifting with it. So um, whether whether it's the accounting profession and also finance departments within within the companies, um, you know, I, I believe that if you don't, you know, go with the times and, you know, grab hold of the, te- the technology that's really out there, then you're going to be left behind. So we, uh, you know, I, I have a big focus on, you know, on automation and making sure that things can be done better and faster and really in you know in in 2020 there's you know almost no reason why 
you know, things should be manually entered into an accounting software. And obviously there's going to be always a need for accountants, but, you know, I think that there's a big shift towards um, automation, AI, and really just using software to its fullest. All right. So in, in my past, good. Good. yeah, I was going to say, in, when I was 25, I, was, I was, had a much more uh, a sprite, uh, 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 you know, entrepreneurial spirit. I probably still have part of that, but I apply it to my clients to try to help them find, you know, a path forward in their own uh, 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 quest that they might have uh, uncovered. So we only have a minute and a half left. So could you tell me where you think your business will be five years from now and how the world will be somewhat different? Now, I'm not talking about politics or any of that stuff, but just sure. the evolution of technology, AI, um, you know, just, you know, we went from the 8-track tape to the download uh, to streaming. Like, where do you see yourselves, you know, and how will it be different? Well, I mean, as a firm, we sort of are in a unique space where there are the traditional classic accounting firms out there that sort of do everything. Uh, and, and we are there with technology to try to fill those gaps where we expand and contract with the needs of, of, of a client where they need extra hands, they need extra help, their special technical accounting. And we've been growing literally almost 40% a year for, for several years. And we don't see an end to that just because companies just don't need these huge accounting departments when you start adapting, like Yoni said, adding new technologies. And then you just you need the people there that bring those pieces together uh, on a timely basis. So we're seeing that that change where we're there as a tool for for our clients where they don't have to have full-time staff to get everything done uh and we're sort of just bridging those those efforts and we see no end to that right now well speaking of ends we are perfectly timed and uh i can't thank you enough for being on the show it's the cfo squad cfosquad.com that was jay and yoni and if you have any questions send us an email and we'll forward it to them we thank you both for being here, and we thank everyone for listening. See you next time. Whoa.